Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 15, The Concessions of Camargo. I'm Brandon Seal. After his defeat at the Battle of Morelos on March 25, 1840, the old Federalist brush fox, Antonio Canales, hightailed it across the Rio Grande. One-third of his Federalist army had been left behind dead on the battlefield or consumed in the brush fire that followed it. Another third or so were now prisoners of the Centralist army. In the fighting spirit of the Rio Grande Federalists, the very avatar of the Rio Grande Villas, Antonio Zapata, had been executed. Proof of this fact arrived in Laredo just a few days after Antonio Canales did, on April 4, 1840. There, in San Agustin Plaza, in the center of Laredo, the purported seat of government for the purported Republic of the Rio Grande, a company of centralist riders arrived, unloaded a cask of brandy, and pulled Antonio Zapata's pickled head out of it. Two days later, they repeated the same grotesque performance in Zapata's hometown, Guerrero, but with an added flair. They placed Zapata's head on a pike right in front of his house and left it there, where Zapata's four grieving daughters would have to look at it every time they stepped outside. Only after three days of this cruel spectacle was the parish priest given permission to take Zapata's head down. The people of Guerrero, Zapata's people, did not take well to this provocation. 400 enraged citizens and Carrizo Indians mounted up and rode down the centralist detachment that had delivered Zapata's head to their central plaza, killing the unfortunate messengers almost to a man. And yet, centralist general Mariano Arista let this slide. He was back in a hearts and minds mode, and so he made a point not to retaliate against the people of Guerrero. He also made a point to very publicly pardon all of the men that he had captured after the Battle of Santa Rita de Morelos. The war for the Republic of the Rio Grande was over, in General Arista's mind at least, and now it was time to win the peace. And yet the brush fox, Antonio Canales, wouldn't give up. Back in Texas, he reunited with José María Carvajal, the fiery little Federalist who had been his chief of staff and later Secretary of State. On April 8, 1840, Canales and Carvajal rode into that old bastion of federalism in Carvajal's hometown, San Antonio. They were given a hero's welcome by Mayor Samuel Maverick and other staunch old federalist families such as the Menchacas, Navarros, and Seguins. Carvajal took the podium and reminded his townsfolk that the enemies of the Rio Grande Federalists were, quote, the same who had shed the blood of the Texians in the Alamo and at Goliad, end quote. Carvajal and Canales won over the citizens of San Antonio and left two days later with a letter of strongest recommendation to Texian President Mirabeau Lamar that he formally receive the, quote, government of the northern border of the Mexican Republic, end quote signed by none other than the senator from San Antonio, Juan Seguin. On their way to Austin, Carvajal, Canales, and the rest of the company passed through Carvajal's wife's hometown, Victoria, Texas, on April 10th, where the citizens there threw them an enormous ball in their honor. Again, the citizens of Victoria endorsed Carvajal and Canales' mission, and they sent along to President Lamar their glowing support of the Federalist government of the Republic of the Rio Grande. By the time the Rio Grande Federalists arrived in Austin on May 2, 1840, an enthusiastic crowd was waiting for them there. 
There, on the streets of Austin, the bilingual Carvajal gave one of the most memorable speeches of his career, ending with the lines, quote, We are fighting for liberty, both civil and religious, the principles of which are the same everywhere. We are now following the footsteps of Texas and wish to establish a government of our own independent of Mexico and modeled after your own, end quote. Once again, however, Canales and Carvajal's visit to the Texas capital would not yield them a formal blessing from President Lamar, who still feared centralist retaliation and reinvasion. But Canales and Carvajal didn't leave empty-handed either. They left with more volunteers, more weapons, and more money in the form of loans. They rounded out their Texas tour with a visit to the booming town of Houston, and apparently had some success there recruiting volunteers as well, as evidenced by a local newspaper editor's complaints about all the young men who were leaving their jobs to go enlist with the Rio Granders. And as Canales and Carvajal marched back through San Antonio on their way south, they were pleasantly surprised to find a company of 200 men, comprised of a more or less equal split between Anglos and Tejanos, waiting for them there. Many of these men having been veterans of the Siege of Bear, San Jacinto, and others. And they were commanded by none other than Juan Seguin himself. Seguin was only 34 years old in 1840, but he already had an unimpeachable track record as a Federalist revolutionary. As longtime listeners of this podcast will recall, it was Juan Seguin who had first led a contingent of Texians into Coahuila back in 1834, precipitating the events that would lead to the War of Texas Independence, in which Seguin and his ranging company were present at almost every engagement. Now, in 1840, the temptation to go fight Centralists one more time remained too strong to resist. Juan Seguin resigned his Texas Senate seat and personally mortgaged his ranches and other personal property to provision the 200 volunteers who marched south now with him to rejoin the battered remains of Antonio Canales' old Rio Grande Federalist Army. Against all odds, and for at least the third time in three years, the Rio Grande Federalist cause had risen from the ashes. It tells you something about the enduring appeal of federalism, as well as the depth of dissatisfaction that borderlanders felt for the government in Mexico City that this kept happening. By July 1st, 1840, an army of almost 600 Federalists had gathered north of Laredo, consisting of Seguin's 200 volunteers, 300 or so Rio Grande vaqueros, and again 80 or so Carrizo Indians. After a few weeks of drilling, strategic maneuvering, and some careful screening operations, this motley troop snuck into Laredo in the early dawn hours of July 25th, scattering the small centralist garrison left there to defend it. Laredo was once again in the hands of the Federalist government of the Rio Grande. But then, in the heady aftermath of victory, one of the Anglo-Texian volunteers raised the Texas flag over San Agustin Plaza. This action infuriated Antonio Canales, reminding him of Texian's attempt the previous year to raise a flag on the south bank of the Nueces, which he had objected to in no uncertain terms. And frankly, the Texian's flag-raising only played into centralist propaganda that Rio Grande Federalists were really just the tool of foreign aggressors who would willingly dismember the new Mexican nation just to serve the ambition of their movement's leaders. More than anything, however, the sudden reappearance of Canales and his Federalist force caught Centralist General Mariano Arista totally unprepared. 
and the very visible presence of so many Texians only lent credence to a widely circulating rumor that the Texians were preparing to invade Matamoros as revenge for the execution of Zapata. General Arista was forced to rush to Matamoros to shore up his defense of the port city and its precious customs houses, which left the old Rio Grande Villas unoccupied by centralist troops. Leaving Juan Seguin behind to hold Laredo, Antonio Canales marched triumphantly southward, into the vacuum left by General Arista's hurried march toward Matamoros, and the Rio Grande Federalists recaptured Guerrero, Mier, and Camargo that August. High on their victory, 200 of these Federalists decided to venture on further south, all the way to Ciudad Victoria, the undefended capital of Tamaulipas 250 miles away. On September 29, 1840, Rio Grande Federalists actually succeeded in capturing the Tamaulipecan capital, marking the southernmost extent of their conquests. Unfortunately, they made themselves about as welcome as a fire ant infestation by ransacking the town, repeatedly, and over several days. And the way they did it once again only played into the narrative, because the most visible of these ransackers were the Anglo-Texians, whose motivations increasingly seemed more mercenary than ideological. Within a week, the entire 200-man Federalist force was run out of Ciudad Victoria by its citizens. From there, the Federalist troop boldly decided to strike across the country to Saltillo, but they turned on each other along the way. Some ended up surrendering to the centralist garrison in Saltillo, including, a bit suspiciously, one of Antonio Canales' brothers-in-law. And the rest only made it back to Laredo thanks to a relief party sent out by Juan Seguin to guide them back. And the fate of this expedition is a pretty good metaphor for how Antonio Canales' luck went generally during this period. When he re-entered the Rio Grande Villas this time, the toll of two years of warfare was evident at every turn. Even before Canales had fled back to Texas, some of the Rio Grande Villas had begun to publish statements of support of the central government. The people, the precious pueblos, were just exhausted. The reason they had risen up in the first place was because of the crushing financial burden of the centralist army from the years between 1836 to 1838, yet the previous two years of warfare had only made things worse for them. The statistics from Matamoros give us the best indications. Income from import duties at Matamoros fell from 1 million pesos in 1834 to 262,000 pesos in 1842. And exports through Matamoros fell from 625,000 pesos in 1828 to 481,000 pesos in 1842. The population there fell as well, from 16,000 in 1837 to 7,000 in 1846. And there was something else missing as well. Antonio Zapata. As long as Zapata was alive, the men fighting in Antonio Canales' war, who overwhelmingly looked a lot more like the mulatto Indian Zapata than the Creole Canales, the men fighting for the Federalist cause trusted that their cause was in the right hands when Zapata was living and leading them from the front. They knew they were following a man like them, who was looking out for them. With Zapata's execution, however, Antonio Canales had lost his intermediary to the people, to the men that he was still asking to die and sacrifice for what increasingly looked like a hopeless cause. Yet even as centralist General Arista moved back in to reoccupy the Rio Grande Villas, he had to admit that Canales' capacity for creating chaos 
remained intact. And Arista knew that he had to contend with it. But in a weird way, or maybe it's not so weird, Zapata's death may have given Arista more confidence that he could negotiate a peace with the Rio Grande Federalists and that it would be honored. Because Antonio Canales, at least, understood the idiom of the political world, and he understood the virtue of living to fight another day. And so in November of 1840, General Mariano Arista invited Antonio Canales to a conference in Camargo. There they met, in Canales' adopted hometown, in the same town where Canales had launched his revolt by capturing the local armory. Two years and 13 days after the fact, this time on November 16, 1840, Antonio Canales and Centralist General Mariano Arista met to negotiate the Convenio of Camargo, which I've translated as the Concessions of Camargo. First and foremost, Antonio Canales insisted that the Rio Grande Federalists be granted total pardons and that all of their property be restored to them. This was no small thing, but General Arista granted it, albeit artfully, with the following language, quote, With the object of avoiding future discord among Mexicans, all will be forgotten of the events since the 3rd of November, 1838, end quote, i.e. the date when Canales and company had first raised their revolt. But note that this language also meant that the Federalists were acknowledging the legitimacy of the hated protective tariffs and the tax increase from July of 1838. And, just to make sure they didn't get off too light, General Arista also insisted that Canales and company publicly admit their sin of, quote, exposing the border to the vengeance of foreigners, end quote, which Canales was obliged to do. His public confession was softened, however, by an acknowledgement of the nobility of the sacrifice that he was making now, quote, the Federalists in these provinces sacrificed before the supreme government of their homeland their prior pretensions in order to preserve the dignity and decorum of the nation, end quote. A line which also meant that the Republic of the Rio Grande, if it had ever existed, was officially no more. Antonio Canales also extracted a commitment from General Arista to conduct an offensive the following year against the Indios Barbaros of the North, a campaign that apparently didn't go very well given that 150 residents of the Rio Grande Villas died from Indian raids during the next few years, but the public commitment was perhaps the more important part in reconciling the Rio Grande Villas to their central government. And Canales also convinced General Arista to honor the debts incurred by the Federalists though the selective manner in which General Arista complied with this suggests that he may have agreed to it as a practical way to remove the incentive of any foreign, i.e. Texan merchants, to intrigue against this peace settlement, and to make sure that any remaining Anglo-Texians got paid to get well and good out of Mexico. If you need proof that this measure was probably guided more by real politic than by generosity, Look no further than the fact that General Arista didn't bother to pay any of the Federalist Carrizo Indians back wages. They were simply cut loose and sent home. Similarly, Juan Seguin's expenses were refused as well. In a rather lengthy series of events that I won't go into here, it was financial losses that Seguin suffered in support of the Republic of the Rio Grande in his later attempts to recover those losses that would lead to his political downfall in Texas and his eventual capture by centralist forces in Mexico. Seguin's fellow San Antonian and Antonio Canales' old chief of staff and secretary of state, José María Carvajal, didn't come out particularly well either. 
Yes, he was pardoned, but he was also broke, like most of the rest of the other residents of the Rio Grande Villas. He would spend the next years working as a schoolteacher in Camargo, in his words, quote-unquote, to survive. To be fair, his son had married Canales' daughter by this point, and actually two of Canales' sons were virtual, if not actual, godsons to Carvajal, so I don't think we should assume that he was entirely left out to dry by Canales in this resolution. But it does seem to be the case that only the brush fox, Antonio Canales himself, emerged from the concessions of Camargo better off than he had started. He was given a colonel's commission in the regular Mexican army and made the collector of internal revenue for Nuevo León, an incredibly lucrative posting in 19th century Mexico. And indeed, after agreeing to the concessions of Camargo, Antonio Canales entered his birthplace of Monterey at the head of what could have easily been mistaken for a victory parade. Federalism along the Rio Grande had been defeated, for now. But Antonio Canales had not. If Antonio Zapata had been the great power broker and kingmaker in the previous two years, the concessions of Camargo confirmed Antonio Canales as his successor. But Antonio Canales was about to be tested by his new masters. He was still looked upon skeptically by most of the authorities in Mexico City, and he was looked upon with particular skepticism by the man who had just regained the presidency of Mexico in October of 1848, our old friend, Santa Ana. After returning from his imprisonment in the United States following the Battle of San Jacinto, Santa Ana had cinematically reemerged on the Mexican political scene through his personal heroics in defending Veracruz against a French landing there during the Pastry War. And now that he had recovered the presidential sash, Santa Ana wanted Texas punished. When he'd crossed the Rio Grande in 1836, Santa Ana had refused to allow any Rio Granders to march alongside him into Texas because he mistrusted their loyalty. Now, because he still distrusted their loyalty, was precisely the reason that he wanted Rio Granders to avenge him in Texas, to prove their loyalty to him. And the Rio Grander in particular that he had in mind was Antonio Canales. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the 
the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here, and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Villas del Norte, A History from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Villas del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesar Hinojosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilan Coahuilteca Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.